We're in the Psalms this morning. Uh, the Psalms are uh, God's prayer book, uh, so is our prayer book. Here in the Psalms, the uh, Holy Spirit gives inspired expression to, uh, to every range of emotion and thought in the human heart. Here the Holy Spirit prays for us, and in praying for us, teaches us how to pray, teaches us how to worship, teaches us how to uh, approach God in all of these things. And so much more than that, it's also a revelation because here then as it reveals, as the Holy Spirit speaks for us and uh, speaks inspiredly uh, and speaks in an inspired way that He reveals God to us and He reveals us to us. As we have in this psalm that is before us, Psalm 8 this morning in some ways is about mankind. Uh, centrally, at the center of it, it's about us and our place within the universe. How do we fit in to everything? And yet it's framed in the context of God's greatness and the majesty of, of His name and who He is. And he is revealed as Creator. And so uh, Derek Kidner, Old Testament scholar, says this, this psalm is an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be. Celebrating as it does the glory and the grace of God, rehearsing who He is and what He has done, and yet relating us and our world to Him, all with a mastery, an economy of words, and in a spirit of mingled joy and awe. And because it's about our place in the universe of, of mankind, it is also about Jesus, who is the true man, the second Adam. The ultimate man in some ways. Incarnate and perfect. And so this is one of the most, probably one of the two, there's you know, debate about how many references are to different psalms, but uh, this is one of the top two quoted psalms in the New Testament. In other words, the New Testament as it tries to unpack its message and teach us the Gospel and point us to Christ, uses Psalm 8 more than it uses any other psalm. Um, maybe then Psalm 2. So, Psalm 8, hear then the Word of God. O Lord, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth! You've set Your glory above the heavens, and out of the mouths of babies and infants You have established strength or praise because of Your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at Your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man? That you are mindful of him. And the son of man, that you care for him. And yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. And you crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all the sheep and oxen. And also all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning as Your people. We've gathered together. You have made us one. You have made us a church, a family, a body, a people bought by Your blood, united by Your Spirit, strengthened by Your grace, and knit together. We have gathered into Your presence, lifting our voices, 
in our praise, giving of our abundance, praying together and sitting now at Your feet under Your Word that You might speak into our lives and into the life of Your church with power. Oh Lord, come and shape us according to Your Word. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We said Psalm 8 is centrally about mankind. You saw it as we read it there, right in the middle of it is a statement about who we are and our place in the universe, in the created order. But even though it in a sense is a psalm about us and our place, it doesn't begin with us. And it doesn't end with us. Right? It begins and ends with who God is. It's bookended by these identical refrains. As you see it, they're, they're exactly the same. These refrains of Praise and worship of the majesty of God's name and His glory in all the earth. All that He has made. It's full of worship of God as Creator. And so, even though it is trying to tell us something about us at one level, it always is done in this framework of who God is and what He has done. And that He is the Creator and the Lord of all of these things. It's important. Because when you want to understand humanity, this is one of the mistakes that, that the world around us makes and the educational system around us makes is that when we want to understand something about man, they start with man. And often then they end up ending with man. And there's a humanism that, that kind of thrives around us. But the Scripture doesn't do that. It never starts with us and it never ends with us. And it's not, in a sense, about us. It begins with God and it ends with God, the sovereign Creator. We then are human as human beings, are created. That's where we start in understanding who we are and how we fit. Is to understand there's a Creator first and we are created. He always existed. And before anything existed, before the universe existed, before you existed, before the first man or woman or Adam and Eve existed, He existed. Self-existing. All-sufficient. Divine. Deity. It begins with Him. And we are creatures then. We enter into existence at His will. We become uh, something because He makes us something. And whatever it is we are, it's what He made us to be. We are by Him. And so, as He makes us something, He makes us for a purpose. And that purpose He defines. We don't get to make it up. We don't get to decide why we are alive. He tells us why we are alive. Why we exist. We are created by Him and for Him and to the praise of His glory. His name is majestic in all the earth. Right? He is the Creator who has made everything that is around us. And so the psalm about mankind begins, O Lord, our Lord. Right? This is actually two great names for God. You may not know that from the English translation because He repeats it. Lord, Lord. O Lord, our Lord. And you'd think it's the same one. He's saying, oh, you're the Lord and, and you're our Lord. But it's actually two different names. Two of God's great names set side by side. And the translation loses it. It actually says in the Hebrew, Adonai. Well, Yahweh is the first one. Adonai. It's two words you may have heard. Yahweh is God's name. Adonai is the Hebrew word for Lord. And so the second one is translated as the word says. But the first one, and you probably already know this, but for those who don't, you're always on a, you learn something new every day. Whenever your Bible says in the Old Testament, and right there the first, O Lord, and Lord is in all caps, underneath that in the Hebrew is God's name. 
Whenever it's all caps, it's God's proper name. And then when it says Lord, capital L, little O-R-D, it's a translating Adonai, just Lord. And so it says Yahweh, our Adonai. Yahweh, our Lord, our Master, our King. Pious Jews decided that they would not speak the name of God. Some point in the Old Testament era, we don't know when, uh, it may be uh, intertestamental, it may be before that, but somewhere along the way, pious Jews decided when they're reading their Bibles that God was so holy, that His name was so holy, that His name really should be unspeakable and that they wouldn't speak it. And so whenever they read the Scripture, at some point they decided, we're not going to read Yahweh. So reading a text like this, they would read Adonai, Adonai. Even though it says Yahweh. And they would always gloss over His name substituting Adonai again because they did not want to speak His name. And so when the Old Testament Hebrew Bible is translated into the Greek, the Septuagint, uh, before the time of Christ, they follow this tradition. So in the Septuagint, if you read Psalm 8, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of this Hebrew Bible, it says, Kurie, Kurios. Lord, Lord. Lord, our Lord. That's Kurios is Greek for Lord. And so into the Septuagint, that tradition, they just instead of glossing it over, putting God's name and reading Adonai or Kurios, they just put it in there. Kurios, Kurios. This is the Bible that the New Testament writers mostly quote from, the Septuagint, from the Greek. And so often, anywhere in the New Testament where you quote the Old Testament and God's name is used in the New Testament, it's translated as Lord. And so, you never get to see underneath, even in New Testament quotes of the Old Testament, where, God, where it's God's name and, and where it is just Adonai and Lord. Which is important because Jesus, the great confession of the New Testament is Jesus is Kurios. And there's a whole sermon to be had on showing that that actually, when He is given the name, the name that is above every name, Jesus is Kurios, Lord, Adonai. Uh, when you read the text, it actually is a text about God who says, it, to me, every knee will bow. To me, every tongue will confess. And then in Philippians, Paul takes that and where God says, to me, they will bow and confess. And Paul says, Jesus has been given that name. The name that is above every name. And to Him, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Kurios. He is Lord. He is the Lord with the name. Anyway, there's a lot of those nuances in the New Testament that do point to the deity of Christ. But the interesting thing is the English translators follow the Septuagint in that tradition. And so in our Bibles, we get Lord, Lord. But they've made the effort of giving us all caps. So we know when it is His proper name, we can know what's underneath it. Uh, and, and we get that. But we followed that tradition. I'm, I'm going to leave it whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Jehovah's Witnesses, when they knock on your door, think it's a bad thing. And the first thing that they'll tell you is, you know, God's Bible contains His name. He gave us His name. His name is Yahweh, or Jehovah, as they used to. It's all in the vowel points. and Anyway, that's another story. But Jehovah, Yahweh, same word, same name, different vowel points. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses, the first thing they'll do is we're here basically to witness to Jehovah. You probably don't even know who that is because it's not in your Bible. You'll read your whole Old Testament and never see Jehovah or Yahweh in your Bible. And that's where they start with you. Why have they glossed over His name? Why have they hidden His name? Why don't they tell you who He is? God told us who He is, and now we're... 
We're Jehovah's Witnesses uh, to tell you who He is. And then they give you an idolatrous, wrong, blasphemous idea of who God is. But after, the point is that's where they'll start. And there is, there is something to be said there that you need to know that, that we do know where His name is. And I do think there is a, play, a place, I, I tend to use it. I tend to read Yahweh uh, instead of Lord. Um, I'm still working on that. Is that good or bad? God gave us His name. He gave it to Moses. He told him, go tell them my name. Go tell them who I am that sent you. Right? The psalmist uses it. All the writers of the Bible in the Old Testament definitely use it. The name of Yahweh our Lord, which is majestic and glorious and excellent, he says, in all of the earth. And he goes on to declare that this glory, this majestic name that we know and that God has given us and revealed to us, that the glory of this one, he says, he has set his glory above the heavens. That God's glory is, a, is beyond the heavens, which is huge, but let's just think about that for a minute. Because I think it is sometimes bigger than we, we realize it is. Second Chronicles 2.6, uh, we read that quote, he says this, but who is able to build a house for him? Right? For the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. Right? The heavens can't contain him. So of course his glory, where is it said, it must be above, it must be, it is above and beyond any glory that the heavens can reveal, which makes perfect sense because he created the heavens, and they're but the, a creation, but the work of His fingers, and so but the dimmest glory. His glory is set above and beyond anything. Creation can reveal to us. Can show us. Verse 2. It's a bit perplexing to me. I've wrestled with it. I think this is where I land and how best at least to settle down in my mind. What, what does this mean out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established here the word is strength. Uh, in the New Testament, when this is translated, it's you have ordained or established praise. And, uh, and actually, Jesus translated it that way. And so, out of the mouths of infants, you have ordained praise or strength from the children of men. And so, praise is all around us. It is above and beyond the heavens. And, and from the lips of our smallest children, there is a sense it all gives glory to God. I held little Isaac Luck. Lust yesterday. Um, and it's true. You know, from the smallest infant, the glory of God, you cannot hold that little one and not, in a sense, worship. Not Him, but the one who makes Him. Uh, it, is, it is amazing. So from our smallest children and uh, their earliest grunts and noises to the heavens all declare the glory of God and rebukes His enemies. And I like it this, that this is where it goes because Jesus quotes this text and He uses it this way. In Matthew chapter 21, it is, it is after Jesus' triumphal entry. If you remember you know, at the end, Jesus enters into Jerusalem in a triumphal procession. Uh, he's got His disciples with Him, but everybody comes and meets Him and they throw palms on the ground and cloaks and He comes in on a donkey and they're singing in praises. You know, here comes... Uh, Hosanna to the Son of David. You know, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And this goes on. And when Jesus reaches the temple, this comes up. It says, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did and the children in the temple still crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. They were indignant. They couldn't believe it. They said to Him, do you hear what they're saying? Jesus, 
Like in other words, rebuke them. Silence them. Do you know what they're saying about you? Do you understand what's being said here from the mouths of these children? Like you're the adult here. Shut it down. It's inappropriate. Jesus says to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? You know, once again, Hosanna means save us. Right? So they're crying out to Jesus, save us, son of David. Save us, son of David. Title of Messiah for centuries in hope. Right? Save us, son of David. These children are crying out to Jesus. And, and so, scribes and Pharisees can't understand why He would let it go on. Jesus validates their praise. Right? Out of the mouths of praise. Whose praise is ordained but God's? Out of the mouths of infants, God is praised. His glory is above the heavens. And they're praising Jesus. And Jesus accepts it and allows it to go on. He accepts the title, the messianic title. Son of David. David's ultimate son. God has ordained that children would understand before these Pharisees. If the first half of the verse is about Jesus, that they have ordained, you've ordained praise that it would flow to Jesus is the son of David, son of man. The second half of that verse is against the Pharisees and the scribes who are rebuking Jesus, right? We see it there in verse 2 where it says, out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength or praise. But he does it, why? Because of his foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. And Jesus lets the praise of these children silence the scribes and the Pharisees. Tells them this is the way it ought to be. And so, Jesus applies this. It's fulfilled in His own ministry and the children who bring Him praise and wonder. And so David moves though from this acknowledgement of the infinite scope of God's glory from the heavens to the lips of our children. He moves from the praise of God in all of this to the consideration of the glory of the heavens themselves. It's an exercise in humility all by itself. Right? What does he say? I look at your heavens. Right? When I look at your heavens, when I just go out and look up at the night sky, the work of your fingers that you have made, the moon as it rises. There's been some beautiful moon rises this fall. I don't know if you saw some of those harvest moons. Your super moon on the horizon, big and orange, comes up. Some of the, there's a glory in, in a night, a moonlit night. There's also a glory in a night of a new moon when there's no moon. And so the stars are exceptionally visible because the light of the sun is not competing with them. You have to imagine David. David was a shepherd. And uh, he lived out in the fields for years and years. You've got to imagine David laying on his back night after night. The sheep are down for the night. Laying on his back looking at the stars. Have you ever been that far from? You're going to have to leave Chattanooga and drive for about an hour. Probably 60, 70 miles. You're going to have to drive... 60 miles out of Chattanooga into wilderness, away from cities and away from lights, to even begin to see what David could see. Um, there, there is more stars than you have imagined. I had, when I was in college, we used to go out to a place called Reddish Knob. It was about 45 minutes from Harrisonburg, Virginia. I went to James Madison in Harrisonburg. Harrisonburg was only a city of about 35,000 people. So it wasn't like you know, it was this big metropolis. With, but still, the lights are there 
impede your ability to see the stars. And so you drive, we would drive 45 minutes out and drive a reddish knob was this knob that went up and it was a bulb. So that when you came up at some point, you drove over the tree line up on top and literally had a 360 degree panorama, not only of the countryside, but of the, of the sky. And we would go up there, we went up there one particular night and to camp put out our sleeping bags and did just what David would do as he was tending sheep and lay down and look up in the stars. And we would sit there and talk for hours. And what you could see, uh, it was astounding. Go ahead if you got that slide. I, I actually, and that doesn't do justice. I tried to get a slide where you could see the number of points of light, right? The number of stars that are in the heavens, that he's laying there, and he's imagining, looking at these things. When I, when I consider the moon and the stars which you have set in place, and I know that you've set your glory above these things. But for David, it's an exercise in humility. Looking at the vastness and, and, and knowing that God is above and beyond and has made it all. David is laying there thinking, what is man? What are human beings? Why does God even give us the time of day? Why does He think of us? Why does He care? Why does He care about us? You know, what is it all about? You know, you know what, is, what does it mean to be a human being in God's world? And how much more this is true when we have the modern... See, David's just looking at that, that starry sky, that picture. You know, with modern astronomy and the things that we know, we know that the earth is actually as big as we seem in the small little dots you see out there. We're actually a very small planet. We're a small planet on the edge of a small solar system. And our solar system is on the edge of a small galaxy. And our galaxy, which we've already gotten pretty big when you're starting out, we're, we're just a solar system spinning around this galaxy. We are one of over a billion galaxies with distances, incomprehensible distances between them. The size and the scope of what is out there. The, the earth is not even a speck of dust. You know, when you start thinking then about a billion galaxies and our little galaxy and our little solar system and our little planet and then us little, what, walking around on it. Ants is too big. Right? We're, we're like if the earth is like an atom and we're subatomic particles. Right? What is that? Quark? Or something like that. And David is like, I'm just a quark. Why? You know, in this vastness, what are we? What are we that God takes notice of us, cares about us? The answer is really startling because <laughs> we're not an accident. We are specifically and purposefully created. Small though we may be, specifically and purposefully, right? Verse 5 You have made him. Mankind, people, human beings, men and women, you have made us a little lower than the heavenly beings. We may be small in the vast scope of things. But there is a dignity and a glory, he says to us. He has crowned us, human beings, with glory and with honor in the universe. The Septuagint translates that word a little lower than the heavenly beings, translates it as angels. And so often in the New Testament quotes it, it says we are made a little lower than the angels. But the word being translated there, again, is another word you'd probably know. It's the word Elohim. 
which is one of the names for God. And so, again, there's all these debates about you know, where you land as scholars. Why does it go from Elohim? Why, in the, why did the translators of the Septuagint that translated the name of the Lord as, as Adonai, uh, as Kurios, uh, they change Elohim and translate Elohim, which at the very least is, can be, I guess, translated as heavenly beings, um, angels. You know, but in some ways, it may not be exalted enough. And that is where you do with it what you will. He created us a little lower than the Elohim. Which could say a little lower than God. A little lower than at the very, at the very least, a little lower than the, heaven, the, the greatest of the heavenly beings and the angelic hosts. In this vast universe, humanity holds an exalted position by virtue of our creation. And the passage here echoes for us Genesis uh, and the creation account. In Genesis 1.26, under your fourth point, then God said, let us make man in our image. Let's make him after our likeness, the divine plural, and let them have dominion. Right? Which is where the psalm goes. You crowned him with glory and honor and you gave him dominion over the works of your hands. And you put all things under his feet. And so there is this, you gave him dominion first to the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the livestock and over. So the psalm is just a paraphrasing of this verse in Genesis 1.26 where God creates us and so when He crowns us with glory and honor, it's referring very strongly in my opinion to the image of God in man. Right? He created us in His image, He says. And then He gave us dominion. He crowned us with glory and honor and then you gave Him dominion over all the works of your hands. And so part of God's image in us is this idea of, of His image. And His image has a lot to do with dominion. Some have argued, you know, what is the image of God according to the Scripture? And you come up with all different answers. One answer is it's dominion. The image of God in man. God is a divine ruler. He is Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of lords and King of kings. And He made us in His own image and He gave us dominion. And made us sub-regions, you know, vice-regents of God over the all that He has made. And the image you know, abides in that dominion that He gave us. Others would say that it abides in our rationality, our ability to think, which I think it certainly has to do with. I don't think you can have dominion and not be a moral, rational creature in so many other ways. And so I think His image is a very rich thing. When He makes us in His image, it crowns us with glory and honor, not just in position, but in what He has made. And that we are image bearers of God. The world sees us as slightly, maybe slightly higher than animals. Right? You've seen the charts. It's in most of your biology books, you know, and it starts with a little, I don't know what, amoeba or whatever is a thing, and gets a little bigger or whatever, and it's on all fours, and it gets bigger, and then it's kind of upright, and then, you know, and then there we are, you know, just a, just a little higher than the rest of the animals, you know, just at the top, you know, there's been some kind of a freak mutation, and, and this is what you get. You know, we call it evolution, and now you're just a great... In fact, some people would say it wasn't a very good step, and some people would actually say we're not a little higher than the animals, we're worse than the animals, because we ruin the world in which we exist, and they don't. And there are those who would kill people to save animals. Um, because they would say we're not even a little higher than the animals. Now, I will give you that this idea of dominion has been abused. <laughs> but the, the Scripture very clearly says we're not just a little above the animals, we're a little lower than Elohim. Just a little lower than the spiritual powers uh, than maybe God Himself crowned with glory and honor. 
So it describes our dominion over everything, right? Everything. Over the works of your hands. You put all these things under His feet, right? We'll go from sheep and oxen back to the shepherd and the, you know, all the beasts of the field, even the ones that aren't domesticated, the birds in heaven which certainly aren't, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. You know, everything in the water, on the land, and in the sky. Everything that's been created, every creature that there is, you are given dominion. A little lower than the Lord is His vice region over the things of the earth. It's an amazing thing. We are stewards of all that God has made. It's been abused. Sometimes we terribly abuse God's gift and destroy. I think the conservation movement has been a good thing as we go to apply all of this and start thinking about what it means that we are God's vice regents and stewards over all that He has made, that we've been crowned with glory of honor in His image and given dominion over the earth. That has been abused. Even, even as you say that a husband is head of his home, you know, and then we get, you know, our sin gets carried away, and we start thinking that means she's my servant, and it starts meaning we start, you know, and it's all about me. And this, this whole thing that goes on when Jesus says he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. This whole thing of dominion, we have used and abused our resources. And I do believe that. And so, I'm, in some ways, we should be abashed that the whole, you know, the whole tree hugger movement or those who were constantly, a lot of those were not, was not Christian at first. And, but I resonate with them. I think they're absolutely right. We have been given care of this world. We are stewards of all that God has made. And so, recycle, reuse, and, um, yeah, recycle, reuse, and what's the third one? Reduce. Reduce, recycle, reuse. I'm in favor. Uh, I, I believe it is part of our stewardship of God's creation and the managing of the resources He has given us to the glory of His name. And so all that God has made is good. It, we should delight in His creation. It should awe us. It should humble us. It should delight us. 1 Timothy 4.4 says, Everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. He says, the, Everything in the earth has been given to you. It's all good. And it's been given to you, in a sense, to serve you and also for you to provide stewardship and leadership and governance of what God has done. And to enjoy it, but not to abuse His good gifts. So dominion doesn't mean abuse. Careful, thoughtful stewardship of the natural resources God has given us. But we need to walk away with a good sense of God's Imago Dei. Right? The image of God. Because it changes everything if you think that we are just a freak accident of nature in a bag of chemicals and bones and are just a little higher than the animals in terms of how bags of chemicals and bones go. And that there is some freak thing that has gone on that we are self-reflective and, and able to do more and have opposable thumbs. You know, but it, it's a different thing to say you are a little above the animals and maybe not even that. And how we see human beings, it goes into all kind, every form of ethics. See, they want to say you're nothing but a freak accident in a bag of bone and chemicals and you're hardly better than an animal. And then they start crying out for dignity and justice and all these things. You just gave us the framework that said there is no dignity. You just gave us the framework that says it doesn't mean a thing. You just said we're a freak accident. We came from nowhere and we're going nowhere. You just said that we are answerable to no one and we just are whatever we are. And when we die, that's it. So how can you tell me anything? Really? I'll do, you know, 
I'll do what I want. And when I'm gone, what are you going to do about it? You know, as long as I can get away. You know, see what it does? It undoes. It's different to be just a little above the animals than to be created a little lower than God, crowned with glory and honor in His image. And so when we look at the least of these, Jesus was very concerned about the least of these. The poor, the broken, the weak. Image bearers of God. It changes everything. The capital punishment in the Old Testament was based on God's image. You know, by the hand of man shall your blood be shed because He is created in the image of God. And capital punishment, and some would say, He's created in the image, you can't kill Him. And God says He's created in the image and anyone who violates and murders is held accountable in capital punishment. That's a whole other sermon another day. And I don't know where you go. But I think the Bible states it opposite of what is usually argued. The sanctity of life, you can't... No, it's because life is sacred that when it's violated, there is capital punishment according to at least the Old Testament. But the image of God, as we see the least of these, the powerless and the broken, you can tell a lot about a person how they treat the weak and the powerless. And whether we kill them off or abuse them or lord it over them or mistreat them. The elderly and the infirm, the, the small and the... You know, it says a lot about your theology and the image of God and how you understand what God has made us to be and to do. So let me just close with this then. This image though is broken. You don't have to look very far to look in the mirror and to read your paper and to know that the image of God in us is broken. That we are not all that we were created to be. That we are like the broken down ruin of a castle. You can see it was once a great and glorious thing, but it's broken. There's something wrong. There's something twisted. There's something... But God in His grace sends His own Son. Born of a woman. Born under the law. Born as a man, a true man, bearing the image of God. Jesus is the, Colossians 1, is the image of the invisible God. And He is the image we lost. He is the image that is broken in us. He is the image returned and come to save and restore us into that image. And so it all is first and restored into Him. And then add through Him, through faith in Him, life in Him, trust in Him, we are saved. And remade in the image. Hebrews 2, under the last point, it has been testified somewhere, Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, you made him a little lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honor, you put everything under subjection. But now, in putting everything in subjection to him, you left nothing that was outside. Heaven, earth, and the waters, everything was included, but at present we don't see it. We don't see everything in subjection. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. They're broken. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Jesus, the Incarnate One, who in His incarnation joins us in our humanity, so to speak, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, now crowned with glory and honor, as the text says, as He sits at the right hand of the Father, exalted and glorified because of His suffering and death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for all of us. What He is saying is Jesus became a man, took on flesh and bones, created a little lower than the angels so He could taste death to save us from our brokenness.
to remake us into the image of the One who, though exalted above the heavens, knows us and loves us and has made us for Himself. If you've never trusted in Christ, if you've never put your faith in Him and bowed your knee to Him as this One, the true Son of Man, that He speaks of in verse 4, the true Son of God who came, bore our own sin and His body on the cross, and died that we might be saved from ourselves. I would encourage you to trust Him. Put your faith in Him. The Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15, He must reign until He has put all of His enemies under His feet where they belong. That's the language of the text. Until it is all under His feet. And then the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The day is coming, though we don't see it subjected now. It says the day is coming. Christ will return. Things will be right. The image will be restored. Things will be as they should be. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you don't leave us in our fallenness. And though we have so horrendously broken your image, that we no longer reflect the glory of what you have made us to be, we see Jesus. We see Jesus who for a while was made lower than the angels, but who is perfect in his humanity, perfect in his mercy, perfect in his deity. Perfect as a Savior because He is one of us and yet He is God. Father, I pray that You would help us to see Jesus crowned and reigning and saving and restoring all things that we may have a heart for the least of these like You do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.